Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jordan Rayner, and you are listening to part one of The Demon Pig Farmer of Vancouver, The Robert Picton Story. This is going to be a true crime deep dive into the life, psychology, and horrific murders committed by one of Canada's most notorious serial killers. This episode may contain content that is disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. As kids, when we're growing up in school, there's always that one kid in class that seems to be the outcast that nobody wants to be friends with, hang out with. It's the kid who just isn't like everybody else. It's a sad reality, but kids just naturally have a way of identifying and pushing out the ones who don't belong. And Robert Willie Picton was that kid. Little Robert Picton was a boy being raised on a third-generation pig farm by a mother who was extremely neglectful when it came to him and his brother's hygiene and overall well-being. Louise, Robert's mother, worked him and his brother nearly to death on the farm, prioritizing the pigs and the livestock above her boys. The pigs were always first, taken care of, fed. They were the key component to the family business, after all. But despite being so on top of the pig's well-being, Louise sent her sons to school in dirty clothes, soiled with mud, dirt, pig feces. She didn't make them shower. She didn't teach them how to properly take care of themselves. And so Robert and David both went to school smelling like the pig farm. And look, if there's anything that will make a kid an instant outcast in school, it's being the kid who smells. I remember when I was in middle school, there was this one girl in our class, and she came from a really bad home life where nobody cared about her, and she was pretty much raising herself, and she would show up to school day in, day out in the same purple sweatpants and sweatshirt with the same stains as the day before and the day before that. Her hair was greasy, and you could tell she just wasn't clean, she wasn't bathing, And the kids in my class were really ruthless to her, and they loved to talk about her behind her back. They got big laughs out of making nicknames for her, and it it really was awful. And Robert Picton had this same kind of experience in school. His classmates actually nicknamed him Stinky Piggy, and he was a complete social outcast because of how he looked and smelled. Now, it goes without saying, but this kind of humiliation and bullying is extremely damaging to anyone, but especially children whose brains are still developing, still learning how to form meaningful bonds with other human beings, how to love and feel empathy and compassion. It affects what kind of adult a child grows up to be, their self-esteem, the way that they see themselves, their ability to stand up for themselves and take on a meaningful role in society. So, Here's this little boy who's being worked to the bone on this pig farm by a domineering mother who is also being completely socially rejected in school, which is damaging enough, but then there is another huge factor in Robert Picton's early life that I believe played a crucial factor in the monster that he ultimately became. So... Growing up on a pig farm, Robert would have been introduced to the smells, the sounds, and the sight of death on a daily basis from the time that he could toddle and form memories. And we're not just talking death, we're talking gruesome, gory, violent death. 
In a slaughterhouse, back in Robert's day, the pigs would have been hung upside down by their back feet and their throats would have been slit, causing them to bleed to death slowly. The shrieks and the squeals from these pigs dying, thrashing and trying to get free and survive as all living things instinctually do is disturbing and it's it's a horrible thing to have to witness and it's the kind of thing that would move most people like us to feel instant pain and emotional distress and certainly compassion for the animal because you know we we love animals and it would be heartbreaking to see something helpless suffer and fight for its life and yet here we have a child growing up in an environment where that shock factor is removed Robert would have been completely desensitized to this kind of violent death and dismemberment, the gore of the blood, the bones, guts, severed pig heads, seeing carcasses boiled to remove the hair from them, carcasses being sawed in half. This was a routine and part of daily life for him. Now, this level of desensitization combined with his social rejection was no doubt a lethal recipe for disaster in Robert's early development. He had managed at one point to bond with a calf on the farm and had adopted it as a pet, and he loved this calf dearly. And he came home from school one day to find that his father had slaughtered it. This devastated Robert and only further emphasized that the world he lived in was fleeting, that there was no need to get attached to anyone or anything because it all goes away one way or another. Now, you remember me saying earlier that Robert's mother Louise was kind of off her rocker and definitely had a few screws loose. Well, what I'm about to tell you next is yet another defining earmarker in the ultimate creation of the serial killer that Vancouver, Canada would one day be haunted by. So, in country life, farm life, it's very common for kids to be driving trucks, tractors, farm equipment from a very early age. I I can attest to this. I grew up in Oklahoma in the country, and me and my friends were all behind the wheel of various vehicles before we were even teenagers. And, well, one day, Robert's brother David was driving the truck on the road near the farm, and he accidentally hit a boy who was walking down the road. Panicked, David gets out of the truck, he runs back to his mother's house, and he's screaming for his mother, and so Louise comes out of the house, she follows David down the hill to see what happened, and she sees the boy lying in the road. And then, Robert and David both watch their mother pick up the boy, who was still alive and in a lot of pain, obviously, and she carries the boy to the lake near their house, where she then proceeds to finish him off and dispose of his body in the lake. Now, picture this. Here's two young boys, and they literally are standing there and witnessing their mother commit murder to make a problem go away. And this, I believe, was a crucial anchor point in Robert's psychological development. Here is his mother, the authority figure in his life, the one who dished out the discipline, provided the food, ruled his life, And she has just demonstrated that human beings are no more significant than the pigs on the farm. There's more being born every day, and so their death is insignificant. It's just something that has to happen sometimes. Louise Picton single-handedly removed any possibility of Robert growing up with a concept of value for human life, for dignity in human death. To him, at this point, there was no wrong or evil in death. It was just factual, it was natural, and it was inevitable. 
Now, as a teenager, Robert spent six plus years as a butcher's apprentice where he learned how to debone carcasses himself, how to officially butcher, dismember, and dispose of animal remains. And this was a skill that he would put to sinister use later. By age 21, Robert was working full-time on the pig farm until his parents eventually passed away and left the estate to him and his brother David, although Robert was the only one who had any interest in keeping the business running. Robert as an adult was not entirely different from Robert as a child in a lot of ways. Um, He still had the propensity toward very poor hygiene. He was unbothered by his own smell. He wore dirty clothes, he was greasy, and he was an unkempt man with a stubbly beard, and he often used butter to slick his hair back. So naturally, he wasn't the kind of young man who blossomed into a handsome charmer who was able to kind of, you know, woo women or catch their eye with a dazzling smile, quick wit, or charisma. Robert had to find more accessible ways to gratify his needs, and so he began frequenting a part of downtown East Vancouver nicknamed Low Track, which is basically like Skid Row in California. Low Track is where the hardest of the hard try to scrap out a life and survive. There's drug addicts, prostitutes, drug dealers, traffickers, gangbangers. Back in the 80s and 90s, up to a quarter of the population of Low Track was HIV positive, The prostitutes, according to one study in 1995, said that 73% of the prostitutes in that area entered the trade as children, and the same percentage were unwed mothers, averaging as many as three children each. And more than 90% of those mothers had already lost their children to the state or didn't even have a clue where their children were. Okay, so this was a rough rough part of town, and this was the place that Robert Picton was roaming to find company. So this tells you the level that his upbringing and childhood trauma had reduced him to socially and the kind of life that he was destined for. Now, after Robert and David's parents died, they very quickly let the farm go to ruins. They didn't keep it up. They didn't run it like their parents did. And one neighbor of theirs actually recalls and says, Man, that farm was a creepy place. Rundown, rusty equipment that was scattered all over the property, trash and litter everywhere, buildings dilapidating and caving in, and it had really begun to resemble the set out of a horror movie. And around this time, real estate investors reached out to the brothers, seeing an opportunity, and the brothers ultimately sold off a big portion of the farm for over $5 million. Suddenly, The brothers had more money than they had ever seen and really no clue what to even spend it on. So Robert and David began throwing these wild parties at the pig farm and they registered themselves as a nonprofit organization called Piggy's Palace Good Time Society. It was a very nicely built but illegal after hours bar and the people who frequented there were kind of the shady underbelly of Vancouver and as many as 2,000 people at a time would attend these raves and these parties at this barn and it's even said that Hell's Angels would frequent there as well. Now Robert was known to be a very quiet person, very reserved on the outside but it's most definite that he was not quiet on the inside. These parties and orgies on the pig farm were no doubt a way for him to release the chaotic thoughts and feelings and emotions that were raging inside of him because undeniably he was a monster just wearing a quiet mask. 
One night, Robert came across a prostitute nicknamed Stitch. She was a 31-year-old mother of two and a serious drug addict. And Robert brought her to one of these raging parties on the property one night. And for Stitch, selling her body was the quickest way that she could get her next high. And so when Robert pulled up in an old pickup truck and flashed a big wad of cash, she got in. And here's the thing, y'all. It was 17 miles from low track to the pig farm, which normally 17 miles would be a big nope for a prostitute because time is money and 17 miles is a long, long distance to go for one John and it just didn't seem practical. But Robert was loaded and it was very apparent that he could make it worth her time. And so despite her instinct screaming at her not to go, Stitch went with him. They had sex in Robert's filthy trailer, and then Stitch asked to use the phone. But at this point, Robert attacks her, handcuffs her, and starts stabbing her with a knife in the gut. Stitch immediately starts fighting back. She's extremely spirited, and an all-out brawl breaks out in this trailer. And she manages to get his knife away from him and starts stabbing him back. And within a few minutes, this trailer is covered in blood, and Robert actually passes out from his wounds. Next thing you know, a neighbor that lives near the pig farm hears a loud banging on his door in the middle of the night, and when he goes to open the door, it's Stitch, and she's frantic, she's screaming for help, she's bleeding out right in front of him. So the neighbor calls the police, and an ambulance comes and picks her up. She's taken to the hospital with a handcuff still dangling off of her wrist, and she almost dies several times on the operating table before they were finally able to stabilize her and save her life. Now, once Stitch is out of surgery and in recovery, she tells the police what happened and how she had gotten the knife away from Robert and slashed his face. Robert ends up coming to the same hospital later that night to be treated for his wounds, and the police find the key to Stitch's handcuffs found in Robert's pocket. Robert has a gigantic gash on his face, just like Stitch described. So, Robert is arrested and charged with attempted murder and illegally trying to detain Stitch. However, Robert lies to the police and tells a different version of the story about how Stitch tried to rob him for drug money and the police believe Robert and drop the charges. This was ultimately a sloppy, botched first attempt at murder, but Robert would get it right the next time and continue getting it right for the next 14 years. Between 1995 and 1997, over a dozen women had gone missing in the Vancouver area. Now, this was extremely high and had not occurred before, And so detective investigator Ken Rosmo, a geographic profiling expert in Vancouver area, was assigned to investigate this. And he was able to obtain data going back 20 years on the number of missing persons, particularly women from the low track area. Before 1995, there would have been about zero to two cases a year. But in 1995, it spikes dramatically and it became 27 to 28 cases a year. Now this is a huge spike. Statistically significant spatial temporal cluster is what they call it. And this means that there is something significant happening, but what and why, what is the cause? Why all of a sudden are there 27 to 28 cases of missing women a year where normally there had only been zero to two? 
Now, the Vancouver Missing Persons Unit only had about two to three officers in it, and they were trying to deal with every missing persons case in all of Vancouver, not just the low-track disappearances. And thus, the low-track disappearances weren't really given priority due to the fact that they were prostitutes, drug addicts, and people who were just naturally a little bit more disregarded by society. Due to the fact that a lot of prostitutes are transient and don't have strong relationships with friends or family, there weren't a lot of people beating down the doors of the police department saying, hey, help us find these people. And so with there not being a lot of pressure on the police, this whole string of disappearances in the low track area was greatly dismissed and just kind of fell through the cracks despite the overwhelming evidence and the red flags screaming, we have a serial killer. Now, here's the thing. Every single case in these low-track disappearances, if they had taken an actual look into these women that were going missing, it would have been very apparent that these women weren't transient. They weren't your typical, you know, create a new identity and hop a train to the next city without telling anybody where they're going. These were women who had routines. They were the kind that would call their mom on Mother's Day. They had prescriptions and methadone scripts that they would pick up at the same day every month. And these women, their routines were disrupted and just completely stopped. It was clear that they hadn't just picked up and moved on. They were missing. However, there were no bodies being found. There was no forensics, no DNA. And this made it even harder for the police to want to get involved because there was nothing to really grab onto. And so the disappearances just kept happening. And all the while, as the Vancouver disappearances keep happening, the pig farm is thriving. It's a busy place. David is the more social one. He's running the business. Robert has taken more of a role of an employee. People would come to pick up pork from the business, lots of people in and out. Robert did the slaughtering and the butchering of the pigs on site. He would dispose of the carcasses at the meat rendering plant where small local suppliers disposed of animal waste with zero supervision and no paperwork. Robert also is said to have had a really big heart when it comes to helping out people like himself, people that are a little bit rejected by society. And so he would bring people in to work on the farm for cash and he would try to help them financially and give them a place to live, a place to work. And one of the friends that he helped out was a woman named Lynn Ellingston. She was a crack addict who had lived and worked on the farm for several months and he had basically given her a place to live and cash for her addiction. So it was a great hookup for her. And she was aware that Robert brought hookers to the farm but she was also aware that people were disappearing from the Lower East Side. One night, Robert brings home a prostitute, and he and Lynn and this prostitute party hard. They get wasted on drugs, alcohol, they have tons of sex that night, and finally, Lynn gets high and passes out. When she wakes up, there's a light on in the slaughterhouse. So she gets up and she goes out to investigate and she peeks through the door of this slaughterhouse and sees Robert gutting this prostitute like a pig. This prostitute's name was Georgina Pappen. And here is Lynn standing at this doorway, peering in and seeing Robert literally dismembering her. Robert turns around and sees Lynn and he immediately threatens her saying, I will do this same thing to you if you ever say a word. 
And while Lynn never told the police, she did talk about this to her friends, and her friends actually called the police. They brought Lynn in and tried to question her, but she was only in there for about 12 minutes, and she gave them nothing. So they released her, and she went back to Robert and actually blackmailed him and said, I need more money from you because the police are after me. They're trying to get me to talk, and I know what you're doing here. She said, I need money to go on a cruise and get away from all this police heat. And he did. He gave her the money, and she went away. Women continued to disappear in the lower east side of Vancouver. And 31-year-old Brenda Wolf. now she was kind of an angel of the streets, is what people called her. She was a protector of the girls on low track. She looked out for them. Uh, She was a former addict herself, but she had turned her life around and took it on herself to look out for the women that were in the same position she used to be in. And, well, Brenda went missing in February of 1999. Police were covering this case somewhat on TV, and it became apparent that they had no leads. They had no way of even beginning to know who was doing this. And this began to make Robert feel invincible. He was the one behind this. He knew it. He was the one making all these women disappear. He knew what was happening to them. And watching these news reports and reading the papers and seeing that the police were just baffled and didn't even know where to start, this just reinforced Robert's view on prostitutes and even women in general, that no one cares, no one's looking for them, and they don't matter. Now, as police continued to neglect what was going on in the downtown east side of Vancouver, victims' family and friends started taking initiative and started looking for their family members on their own, going into the alleyways, looking in dumpsters, asking other workers and other addicts if they had seen their family members. And eventually, the number of missing women that was racking up in lower Vancouver could not be ignored anymore. The Vancouver Police and the Royal Canadian Mountie Police Force finally launched a joint missing women's task force with over a $100,000 reward posted for any information leading to the arrest of the person responsible. And they received over 12,000 calls. And one of the tips that came in was referring to a Willie Picton saying that he had attacked a prostitute years ago from downtown east side and was charged with attempted murder. And that was the beginning of the end for Robert Picton. You've been listening to the Demon Pig Farmer of Vancouver, the Robert Picton story. Subscribe and stay tuned for part two next week where we're going to take a deeper dive into the murders that Robert committed, how he carried them out, and even more disturbingly, how he disposed of the bodies and the effects that it had long-term on the residents of Vancouver. And until next time, I am Jordan Rayner. Stay bad, stay brave, stay beautiful.